We turn to the Word of God this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're looking at verses 3 and 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. Now it's thrilling to be able to enter chapter 15 of this first letter to the church at Corinth. Paul has been dealing with several practical, urgent matters in the church at Corinth. Those issues included uh, divisions, immorality, marriage, separation, idolatry, self-denial, misusing the Lord's Supper, the unity of the church, and spiritual gifts. So they are very, very practical chapters which precede the chapter 15. And then in chapter 15, the apostle leaves those issues behind. And I think he begins to climb a mountain, the highest and the most beautiful mountain of all. And when he reaches the summit halfway through the chapter, he gives us this amazing panorama, this, this view of what the Lord is going to do in the future for his church and for the world. Although it's a very poor illustration, I find it's like being in Wengen in Switzerland. It's a, a village which is uh, about 5,000 feet above sea level. And as you stand there, you're able to gaze at the snow-capped Jungfrau and Eiger Mountains. They're immediately in front of you. And the view there is breathtaking. The awesome power, the majesty, the vastness of those mountains, the strength, their beauty. It's just overwhelming and thrilling. It's exciting. I can't express to you how, how lovely it is just to be able to stand there and view those mountains. They leave you speechless. Similarly, here in chapter 15, the Apostle Paul is going to show us the summit of God's purpose, the climax of all that God will do at the end of world history. First up, however, he emphasizes the physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. He emphasizes that. He marshals the historical evidence. There are people, individuals, groups of people who saw the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who touched him, who talked to him, who listened to him after he rose from the dead. So it's not a fake story. No lies are being told. There's real historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Then the apostle goes on to tell us the significance of Christ's victory over death and sin and hell. It's a victory which guarantees eternal life for all who love and trust him. And for the Christian, death has lost its sting and terror. And Christians need not fear death because Christ himself died for us, rose again from the dead, and in Christ we too will live 
eternally with him. And then Paul refers to the end from verse 24. This is the, the telos in the Greek, the, the final culmination of history, the end of world history. This is what we can call a real lockdown when everything and everyone will stop. There'll be a permanent lockdown. Things will never be the same again because the Lord Jesus Christ will return. He'll return personally. The one who died on the cross for our sin, the one who was buried, the one who rose again from the dead, who ascended to heaven, who was at the right hand of God the Father, he is going to step out of heaven personally. He'll be visible. The angels in heaven and believers who've died will come with him. And he'll come in all his glory back to this world. And he'll come as king and as judge. And that will be lockdown for the entire world. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him to be Lord to the glory of God the Father. There'll be judgment for all. Believers and unbelievers are separated by the judge, the Lord Jesus. There'll be a general resurrection of the dead. And the believers, their bodies will be raised and made like unto the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church will be safely gathered in, glorified. There'll be a new earth and new heavens and unbelievers and Satan, all his evil hosts, cast into hell. That glorious view and future, the apostle says, is ahead of the church. So in verses 50 to, to 58, the apostle can tell us a little bit about it. I show you a mystery, he says, we shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? The Lord is risen. He is the king. And he is going to complete God's purposes in the future. Now, that's the glorious view and the panorama which the apostle shows us. And yet, some of you listening to me this morning may feel, well, that may be a wonderful plan. But how can I, as a sinner, really take part in it? I've fallen below God's standard. And we've, we've all fallen short of God's glory. We are rebels against God. We've, we've shaken our fist at God. We've chosen not to obey his commandments. We want to go our own way. And we've lived in sin, in rebellion, in unbelief. We've lived as if God did not exist. How can I, someone says, take part in this wonderful future which God and the apostles speaks about here? After all, God is holy, he's clean. He hates sin, he's righteous. He punishes sin. And I'm dirty, and we're all dirty. Our thoughts, our desires, our words, our behavior, the desires and the lusts we have inside, Often we don't want our nearest and dearest relatives to know. We're proud, we're undeserving. 
the result is that many of us may feel ashamed. We may hate ourselves because of what we are and what we're like and what we've done. Well, if that's you this morning, I, I want you to listen to what the Apostle is saying. You may be a Christian, on the other hand, and you feel utterly amazed and overwhelmed that you have part in this wonderful story. So let me bring you to the verses 3 and 4 in this chapter. For Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. So it's a free gift. No matter how young or old you are, no matter where you live, no matter what you've done, whatever you've been like, the Lord Jesus Christ invites you to receive his grace, his mercy, because he died for our sins and he rose again. Now, one thing is absolutely certain, I want to emphasize this, without verses three and four, there is no hope for anyone in the world. And so in verse one, the apostle says, the gospel I preach to you, this gospel you received in faith. He's talking to the Corinthians in, in the church. And when the apostle preached, they were given grace to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive him as Savior and Lord and to embrace the gospel. And I ask you now as I move on, whether you have received this gospel yourself, whether you've made your personal response and whether you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul goes on to tell these Corinthian believers, it's the gospel in which you stand. You've not only received it, but you stand in it. You're firm in it. And as you stand in this wonderful gospel, you can withstand doubts and fears. You can face death and judgment. You can face life in general. You can face the end of the world, provided you stand in this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this true of you if you're a Christian? And are you holding fast to it? Or are you backsliding? And I urge you, if you're a believer, not to lose sight of this gospel. See all your doubts and your fears, your failures, your sin, your unworthiness. In the light of this glorious gospel, keep the gospel before your mind. Glory in it. Think and meditate upon it. And don't forget what you owe to this wonderful gospel of Christ. But certainly without the gospel, we are doomed and under the wrath of God. And so the apostle says in verse 3, remember this gospel I preached to you because I also received it. I didn't make it up. It's not my invention. It's not a, a bishop or a pope or a church which gave it me. I received it directly from the Lord Jesus. It's a divine message. And so I ask you to receive it, to stand in it, and to stand fast in it. Here then, in verses 3 and 4, is the gospel in a nutshell. First of all, says the apostle, that means of first importance. It's the foundation of the Christian faith. It's the foundation on which we build our faith. We don't 
build our faith on what we do or where we go. The foundation is Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, he was buried and rose again. This, first of all, is the, the gospel. So let's consider these words of the Apostle Paul. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You may remember that in his resurrection appearance, he accompanied two disciples as they're walking along the road to Emmaus. It's recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. The Lord Jesus listened to them. They had a sad story to tell. They felt disillusioned, sad, upset, because they'd hoped that the Lord Jesus would have redeemed Israel. They had great hopes of him. But now they tell the Lord Jesus he's dead, and our hopes are, are all dashed. And the Lord eventually shows himself to them, but he rebukes them, and he tells them, O oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered those things and to enter into his glory? It is a, a rebuke because the Old Testament prophets spoke about the Lord Jesus dying for sin and raised, being raised from the dead. Ought not the Christ, this is his messianic title, he's anointed for the work of making a sacrifice for our sin. He's been sent by the Father. He is equipped. The Holy Spirit supported him in his ministry. Ought not the Christ to have suffered those things and enter into his glory? Later, when the eleven disciples were met together, the Lord Jesus joined them. And he told them, All things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. In other words, he's referring to the entire Old Testament scripture. He's saying, well, if you only read the Old Testament scripture, if you only understood them, the law of Moses, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the minor prophets, and the Psalms, they all teach about me. They tell you about me and my death and my resurrection. And so in verse 46, he tells them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Now what I want you to notice in your Bible in verse 46 of Luke chapter 24 is this phrase, it was necessary. It was necessary for the Christ, that's his messianic official title, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. It was necessary, says the Lord Jesus. Necessary not because we twisted his arm. Necessary not because we demand. Necessary not because we've sent God a petition. Necessary not because we've got rights which God must meet and satisfy. We have no right before God. 
What we deserve is death. The soul that sins, the Bible says, shall die. The wages of sin is death. So there's nothing in us which can attract the love of God or the cross where the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have not made it necessary. And yet the Lord Jesus says, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Why was it necessary? Well, because God the Father loved us freely. It was his choice. It was his purpose. There was no pressure on him. He wasn't forced to do it. No one twisted his arm. He wasn't coaxed by people and by what we do. He wasn't coaxed by our good efforts. God the Father decided in his sovereign will to love us freely. And God the Son, God the Holy Spirit also loved us. The Father, Son and Spirit agreed together to love us without any pressure from anyone else. Because when they loved us and made this great plan of salvation, no one existed. Only God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in this great plan of salvation, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had their distinctive roles. And the Lord Jesus agreed and was appointed to come into the world at the right moment to take our human body, our flesh, and to become the, the God-man. And the Holy Spirit agreed that he would support the Lord Jesus Christ in his work as mediator. And so there was love, there was purpose, there was agreement on the part of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And having decided to love us, Paul says it was necessary, and our Lord emphasizes it was necessary for him to die for our sins. Necessary because God is holy, he's clean, he's pure. His nature hates sin. His nature reacts against sin. The reaction of his nature against sin is what the Bible calls his wrath, his anger. He must respond. It's not, it's not temper. He's not in a bad mood. His nature just finds sin revolting and it must be punished. God is righteous. He always acts according to his nature. He couldn't close his eyes to sin. And so it was necessary for Christ to die. There was no other way in which God could love his people and forgive them and put them right with him without the Lord Jesus dying for our sins. It was necessary for our sins, says the Apostle Paul here. So on our behalf, in our place, taking our punishment that we deserve, freeing us as sinners from bondage to our sin, paying the debt of obedience that we cannot pay to God, paying the, the debt of punishment 
that we would suffer in hell eternally. It was for our sins he died. And so he actively obeyed and kept God's law in his life and ministry, the law which we broke. And then on the cross he took the punishment due to us because of our sin. Christ died for our sins. Underline the words in your Bible. And then Paul adds, according to the scriptures. That's what the Lord Jesus said in Luke chapter 24 to the disciples. So all the Old Testament speaks of, anticipates and pictures the, the coming of the Lord Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection. And so when the Israelites were in Egypt in bondage, in slavery, and when they were being released, they, there had to be a Passover meal. And before the angel of death passed over the homes of people in Egypt, the Israelites had to take a, a, a Passover lamb, and then it had to, the blood had to be sprinkled on the doorpost. And when the angel of death came, they would be safe. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us with all the imagery of the Old Testament. In Jesus Christ, we are rescued from the anger of God's wrath of eternal death. And so John the Baptist could say of the Lord Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the high priest would sacrifice a lamb and the other priests would. The blood would be shed on the altar because... Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And the high priest could not enter the very holy of holies, the presence of God, without the blood being shed and being sprinkled on the mercy seat. Or the Lord Jesus in John chapter 3, he refers to the incident in the wilderness when the people of Israel were rebellious and unbelieving. And so God sent a plague of poisonous snakes as a judgment upon them. And some of the people were dying, others were, were very ill from the poison. And the people asked Moses to pray to God for, for release from these snakes. And so God told Moses to, to make a replica snake out of brass, attach it to a long pole, lift it high before the people. And, and our Lord says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. So the poison of sin, the punishment of sin, which is death, is dealt with by the Lord Jesus Christ on the, the cross. Or think of Isaiah 53, the, the servant song, where the prophet Isaiah says, speaking not just of Isaiah or Israel, but of the Messiah. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, smitten by God and afflicted. Notice, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. All we like sheep, and, and that's us, all we like sheep have gone astray. 
we've turned everyone to his own way. And notice, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what happened on the cross. God the Father, the Holy One, laid on his own Son the iniquity of us all, and he was punished in our place. Or in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, Jehovah says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, the Lord Jesus, against the man who is my companion, my, my intimate companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd. And as our Lord Jesus walked from the Garden of Gethsemane to be arrested, he mentioned th these words of prophecy to the disciples. Then those well-known words in Psalm 22, which our Lord used on the cross as he suffered. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words of the Son of God, our Savior on the cross. There was a forsaking of the Father's presence. Now, during the lockdown at the moment, due to the coronavirus, many people know real loneliness. Not being with the family, not being with friends, not being able to get out, feeling isolated. And some sad stories of people dying on their own without their family being near them. But we're glad to hear of NHS staff who try to give as much comfort as they can to, to a dying patient. But on the cross, the Lord Jesus was aware of this forsakenness, of this loneliness. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of course, were not separated. But the Father, as it were, turns away his favorable gaze and smile from his own son. The father withholds comfort, withholds joy and reassurance from his son, and turns away, as it were, from his beloved son, the one in whom, at the baptism and transfiguration, he said, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. But now the Lord Jesus is our substitute. He's dying in our place. He's taking our punishment. He's bearing the full weight and punishment of our sin. His anger is due to us. And yet the Lord Jesus takes it in our place. That is our hope. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. But notice how the apostle goes on. And he says in verse 4, and that he was buried. The Lord's final words on the cross were, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. You'll find them in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. And the Lord Jesus spoke these words at the end of three hours of darkness over the land from midday to, to three o'clock in the afternoon. Just imagine it at 12 o'clock today, the, the sun no longer shone and there was intense darkness everywhere. That's what happened during the three hours from midday to three o'clock when the Lord Jesus suffered 
and then died on the cross. And when he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit, he was quoting Psalm 31, verse 5, verses 7 to 8, which say, Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. And the psalmist goes on, I'll be glad and rejoice in thy mercy, for thou hast considered my trouble. Thou hast known my soul adversities and has not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. Thou hast set my feet in a large room. Against the background of Psalm 31, the Lord at the end of his sufferings on the cross is rejoicing in his Father, in his deliverance, and has been, in the words of Psalm 31, set in a large place. Later in verse 15 of Psalm 31, we're given a glimpse of what is happening when the psalmist says, My times are in thy hand. The Lord Jesus on the cross has come out of the dark, cruel, punishing horrors of hell on the cross. And it was hell for those hours on the cross. And now fellowship with the Father is being reestablished with all the righteous claims of justice satisfied. The curse of the Lord due to us, removed, because the Lord Jesus shouted on the cross, it is finished. I've paid the price of sin for my people. I've been punished in their place. So he steps out of deepest darkness into light, steps out of hell, which was on the cross, to heaven, to the presence of the Father. He endured the second death, which is hell, on the cross, when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that second death was a punishment for, for our sin and separation from the Father. But it is finished, it's over. And having now experienced that hell for us and paid the full wages for our sin, once and for all, never to repeat it, God will never punish a Christian who believes in the Lord Jesus for sin because all our sin has been punished completely in the death of the Lord Jesus. And having done that, the Lord Jesus humbles himself to experience the temporary separation of his body and spirit. And here's the lowest point in his humiliation. He could not go any lower than this as mediator. It was a real death. Make no mistake about it. His human body lay lifeless in the sepulchre where Joseph had laid him. His body was under the power of death, of actual death, real death, with his soul temporarily divorced from it. He tasted death, the Bible says. He's been there before us. But he himself entered into paradise with a penitent dying criminal when he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And the Lord Jesus did all this for us as sinners. He was buried. But notice thirdly and finally, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. 
Come with me again in your imagination to the sepulchre on the first day of the week where the dead body of the Lord Jesus lay. You know that very early that morning as the dawn broke, the two Marys visited the tomb. Mary, Matthew relates what happened in the final chapter of his gospel. Suddenly, says Matthew, there was a, a great earthquake that must have been alarming. The ground was shaking. When we were living in Bangor in the early 1980s, one day there, there was a, quite a powerful earth tremor, and the house literally shook for seconds. And one almost lost one's balance, and, and you, we, we, we would lean against a wall. Even the dog was frightened. It was nothing like the earthquakes in some parts of the world, but it was disturbing. But here, Matthew says, there was a great earthquake. The ground was shaking. And then an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, rolled back the stone from the door. Do you remember what happened next? We're told by Matthew, the angel sat on the stone which had been blocking the entrance to the sepulchre. And the angel's appearance, says Matthew, was like lightning, intense light flashing from him. His clothes were dazzling white as snow, an awesome, unexpected sight. And nearby the soldiers had been guarding the sepulchre. They were shaking for fear paralyzed by fear. Matthew says they were like dead men, helpless spectators in the presence of the supernatural. God was in action, using an angel and natural phenomenon. And the angel then speaks to the women. Don't be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay and they answered and, and they saw for themselves that the sepulchre was empty and then the angel tells them go quickly tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and that's what they did they ran to tell the disciples and peter hearing the news was one of the first to to run back to the sepulchre to investigate in verses 5 to 8 of this 15th chapter, Paul, Paul marshaled some of the historical evidence, as we've noted. It was an historical, real event. The physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. And Paul adds his own testimony. When he was an enemy of Christ and putting Christians in prison and agreeing to the death of, of the evangelist Stephen, he was traveling to Damascus one day to, to capture Christians and to punish them. And as he traveled, this great light shone from heaven. The Lord Jesus spoke to him and dealt with him. I'm Jesus of Nazareth, he said. And he fell to the ground and his life was utterly transformed. I know that Christ is alive, says the Apostle Paul. But Paul adds these important words again, according to the scriptures. The angel has said he'd risen again, as he said. 
and our Lord had talked about his resurrection often. Early in his ministry, he told the people, destroy this temple, that is my body, and I will build it again in three days. People imagined he was talking about the physical temple in Jerusalem, but he was talking about his body. Later, during his ministry in Matthew 12, he declares to the unbelieving people, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And from halfway through his ministry at Caesarea Philippi, our Lord began to tell his disciples that he must suffer, that he must die, and that he will be raised again. But they had not understood. But the Old Testament points to the resurrection, as in Psalm 16, verse 10. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. And in his first recorded sermon in Acts 2, Peter refers to those words and says that they could not refer to, to David because his body decayed. And they find their fulfillment in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Death could not hold the Lord Jesus Christ as prisoner. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Why does the Apostle Paul here and the Bible emphasize so much not only the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross, but his burial and the resurrection of the Savior. In closing, notice the significance in, in two ways. First of all, our sins are eternally paid for in full. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered for our offenses, all the breaking of the law that we are guilty of. Raised for our justification. So he was delivered for our offenses. But the resurrection of the Lord Jesus means that the Father accepted the sacrifice of his Son. He was satisfied that our sin has been punished. And so as our sin was laid on the shoulders of Jesus on the cross, so when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is reckoned to me. I'm right with God. I'm not guilty. I'm pronounced righteous. Or in Romans 8.34, the apostle writes, Who is he that condemns? Well, only one person can condemn me. That is the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul answers, it is Christ who died. The judge died for his people. Yea, rather, that is risen. Is it the right hand of God and made intercession for us? Here is proof that the Father accepted his Son's sacrifice for our sin. All is paid. He will never, never punish a Christian again for our sin. He says we are not guilty. However guilty we feel, the Father sees us right with him because we've trusted Christ. And the righteousness of Christ is reckoned to me as a believer. And the resurrection is the proof. It's also the proof of eternal life and glorification. Now is Christ risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of 
those who've fallen asleep. In Christ, all should be made alive. As a believer, we can look forward beyond death to being with the Lord in glory. And we can anticipate with joy the personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ and our glorification. Christians, you need to stand fast in this glorious gospel. Perhaps some of you lack assurance, or perhaps you have a cold heart. You feel unresponsive to the gospel. That's how Sally Jones felt in Ballard at the end of the, towards the end of the 18th century, when she was writing to Thomas Charles, who had fallen in love with her, but Sally herself wasn't so sure. But Sally was a lovely Christian. She lived a godly life, well thought of, but she felt darkness of soul. She lacked assurance. She was tormented by doubt. And she had a fervent longing in her prayers for the cheering, warming influence of the Son of Righteousness to take away the hardness of her heart. Then Sally began to realize increasingly how her need could be met. And I quote her, a view of redeeming love, Jesus dying on the cross, is the most powerful quickening and remedy for me. In Jesus there is all fullness. And that's the answer, Christian. He cares for us. He died for us. And at great cost, we are loved by him. We are precious to him. He died for us. He dealt with all our sin. Can you not see the Holy Son of God bearing the punishment of all your sins? Trust him. See that your sins have been paid by him and that you're justified right before God in trusting in him. Or maybe I'm speaking to Christians who are, have cooled in their love and devotion and perhaps backsliding. Isaac Watts began his famous hymn with the words, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. And as he surveyed the cross, he was deeply moved. And there we, we see love, says 1 John 4. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Here's the greatest love story ever. The greatest expression of love in the world. We need to glory in the cross. We need to give ourselves to him. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We need to live for him, to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And if you are a non-Christian this morning, I wonder if you recognize your need of God and of mercy. Are you aware of your sin, the anger of God upon you? that you are at present locked out of God's wonderful world, world of light, of mercy, of forgiveness, of joy, of eternal life. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, you will hear those dreadful words, depart from me into everlasting punishment. But the doors of heaven are still open. You can come to Christ. You must repent of your sin, turn your back, on your, on your present life and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ.
and the Holy Spirit will help you. No one else can save you but the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him. And in a sense of need, and as you understand what Jesus did, lean on him, receive him, trust him. As you turn from your sin and depend wholly upon the Lord Jesus, come just as you are to a wonderful Saviour who will accept you and save you. Amen.